0: Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. While we often think of Renaissance era Florence as a city brimming with intellectual inquiry, artistic genius, and political intrigue, it was also a city filled with music and poetry. Today, we're talking to Blake Wilson, professor of music at Dickinson College. Professor Wilson has spent his career both as a performer and a scholar exploring the music of the late Middle Ages and Renaissance, how it was composed and performed, as well as its relationship to other art forms. This spring, he's working at the Center on a new book examining the importance of music in early modern Italy and the ways it was woven into the social, artistic, and civic life of Florence. Welcome, Blake. Thank you. So talk to us a bit about why it's important to recover The history of oral performance in the Renaissance?
1: Well, as it turns out, there was a good deal of culture in Florence and the other city-states, which are all part of my subject area now, that were transmitted orally. And that oral discourse, of course, was extremely important to Renaissance culture. In fact, I would say went to the real core of Renaissance humanist education, the studia humanitatis, from which the center derives its name. So that Orality, which is often overlooked, I think, as a, as a feature of Renaissance culture, because we tend to look back on it and see it as a culture of things and artifacts and of edited texts. And it is the era from which we have, especially Renaissance Florence, textual criticism, fixing things in writing and fixing their, their form. But what escapes our attention, because it was ephemeral, was the fact that so much was in play through oral tradition. That was a compliment to that culture, and so I think in order to have a picture of an accurate and nuanced picture of Renaissance culture, you have to try to recover what it sounded like.
0: How do you go about doing that? How do you recover what it sounded like?
1: Well, of course, we don't have the actual sounds. In some cases, we have instruments, we have songs and song titles, and sometimes we have some of the music that has been written down. So one of the frustrations, I suppose, of my topic is that uh, I, I don't have any written music for this particular area. But what we have is the record of a great deal of activity, even though we can't recover the actual sounds. And of course, the actual sounds of any kind of aspect of the past are difficult to recover. What we have is the record of the activity so that we can at least try to understand how much hearing and speaking were to that culture. And so my particular topic, which involves singing poetry, sung poetry, and the extent to which poetry was a performative medium at this time, thrived in that, in that oral environment. And it really thrived as an adjunct of the importance, not just of written language, but language as a living, spoken force. So that, too, is part of the oral culture, that we can't recover the sounds of their voices. But we can read, as I have recently, the humanist educational treatises to try to reconstruct how important speaking was to them, and speaking well, and being taught to learn how to develop your voice. There's an incredible amount of detail and attention in those treatises to, to the art of speaking well, because it's an outgrowth of rhetoric. And rhetoric went to the heart of the humanist educational curriculum. Just in the, in the educational tradition, the pedagogical tradition, there was, a, as an adjunct to the emphasis on speaking well, on good diction, on developing a resonant voice, and along with that went facial, you know, attention to facial gestures and bodily gestures. It was the whole package that goes back to the traditions learned from the ancient Roman rhetorical treatises of Cicero and Quintilian, as an adjunct to that they encouraged and in many cases required their students to sing to learn how to sing verses it would help them to learn and understand meter in poetry and of course poetry for them was linked to rhetoric as the kind of highest form of verbal assemblage and so singing poetry the capacity to sing poetry and especially to sing poetry to the accompaniment of of a musical instrument, and it typically was a bowed stringed instrument called a lira de braccio, an earlier version of it was the viola, was central to the education of these uh, of these young men. And it really was through this, and it wasn't, by the way, it wasn't just singing written poetry, it was also, and this is key to this tradition, the ability to improvise, to improvise poetry and to improvise the musical accompaniments. And this too is an outgrowth of the education, learning to speak well, extempore, and singing Uh, and improvising poetry, were uh, really extensions of one another. As I understand
0: what you're saying, you're revealing a lot of hybrids. So we have a hybridization between oral poetry and singing, a hybridization of the oral and the written traditions, both going on. Are these hybridizations new to this particular period?
1: Well, it's interesting you should use the word hybridization because it's the one I've begun to use a lot in my my writing uh, recently. It's really... At the core of of the Renaissance, because the Renaissance is, we tend to think of the Renaissance and the rise of humanist culture as a dialogue between contemporary humanist scholars and the remote past, right? Greek and Roman antiquity, which it is, but it's not only that. And and some recently, some scholars like Charles Dempsey have begun to emphasize that that it also involves a certain amount of absorption from recent vernacular culture that predates humanism. So in some ways, older medieval traditions, late medieval traditions that persist in the cities of Italy. And one of these is this kind of singing, which has been around. So the whole first part of my study is really devoted to explaining that tradition. So by the time That we are in the circles of Lorenzo de' Medici or we're at the Ferrara court in the middle of the 15th century or we're what's emerging in Naples at the court there when the Aragonese court begins to evolve in the middle of the century is a kind of hybridization of revived ancient practice and also earlier practices of singing poetry, vernacular poetry, that that were part of the older medieval mercantile cultures of city. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it is uh, uh, that's one of the many important kinds of hybridization that that go to the heart of Renaissance culture, it seems to me.
0: And is there any resistance also going on in Renaissance culture to that kind of blending? Is there an effort to, to keep these various traditions distinct
1: from one another? Well... In this case, no. I mean, I would say this this is one of these that is so natural in many ways because – it's well-supported by the ancient sources as well, and this is something that gives so much cultural force to this practice of singing poetry. Because, of course, when you go back to Homer or you go back to Horace, you know, those, those and, and many other authors, they're, they're full of references to singing poetry to the lyre. and In fact, the adoption of the word lyre in Lira de Braccio is really taken from antiquity. And so it is, it is a kind of perfect storm of cultural forces that are borrowing from antiquity, and current existent vernacular practice, and the coming together of these, and this was a form of entertainment that was really embraced in the courts uh, as well too it was It was storytelling at a time when this was the most entertaining kind of storytelling because these performers i mean this is a practice that was that was engaged in at all levels of of learned society, so there were amateurs, but there were professionals, and the professionals also had acting ability. Uh, they, they were some of the first actors in many of the plays that were starting to be put on, the revivals of ancient plays and Terence and Plautus and so on. And uh, and so the ability of these actors to, and these singers to take the stage and really entertain and tell stories and to do it in singing and in music was, uh, was really a kind of um, powerful medium uh, in the day.
0: So talk to us a bit about how expressive solo singing in opera comes about during this period?
1: Interesting question. One of the reasons that I think this study is important is because, of course, opera arises in Florence in the late 16th century, and it is the telling of the Orpheus legends. And of course, Orpheus is everywhere in these Renaissance humanist revivals of this singing practice. And it is, of course, predicated on solo singing, but it is solo singing with kind of a changed environment of harmony and counterpoint and so on that evolved by this time. But I think it's not a a development that we have sufficiently accounted for in terms of its predecessors. And so what we have between the, you know, kind of the tapering off of this improvisatory practice in the early 16th century and the rise of opera is the madrigal, too, which also arises in Florence in the 1520s and as a kind of increasingly preferred way to sing and hear and perform vernacular Italian verse. But that too, that history too, I think has not sufficiently accounted for the hybridization, I think, that goes on in Florentine academies in the early 16th century, where these improvisatory solo singers are present with people like Verdolo and Machiavelli and others who are the kinds of the shapers of the early madrigal. And what they're really concerned with is, how does one effectively sing Italian verse? I think we don't have the story right completely yet until we understand the real history of solo singing in, in Italy. And that's that's a, a piece of this puzzle that I'm hoping to be able to contribute with this. What
0: would happen if we didn't have a reality in the Renaissance? What would the Renaissance look like? And And part two of that question is, does orality and, and sort of manuscript print culture, which you're suggesting, merge to a great extent, do they also diverge at some point?
1: I mean, I think that's that's one thing that happens in the 16th century. And I, and I, the 16th century is almost another book that needs to be written by somebody who who knows that particular period better than I do, because I do think that especially as ideas about imitation. Uh, this is Pietro Bembo and is very important here, and especially as Bembo begins in the, you know, 1520s and 30s, at least in terms of when his influence begins to take hold, begins to really promote Petrarch as a model for the composition of verse. You begin to really move away from an oral environment, and I think he's deliberate in that in, about that, because improvisation and orality depends on a certain kind of eclecticism and flexibility of being able to draw on multiple models. And I think there are other complicated reasons why this changes. And certainly print culture and a culture of reading uh, begins to take hold. And Bembo is an advocate of that too, of close reading of of poetry and poetic texts. And so I think uh, there is an element of orality that is gradually lost across the 16th century. It's another story, as they say,
0: The whole idea of humanism, which, you know, we think of as going hand in hand with the Renaissance, has in contemporary culture, contemporary scholarship to a great extent, been cast in a very negative light. So what's your response to that?
1: Well, how, how, in in negative, in what ways would you say? Well, we're talking about the Enlightenment
0: project, for example, and, uh, the anthropocentric point of view, um, the dominance of man over nature, the unfolding of the Anthropocene? Uh, maybe it's an unfair question, but... Uh, no,
1: I think what it is is probably an unfair comparison for humanism to kind of weigh it in light of later culture because, of course, it had no knowledge of that. The culture and period, you, you, I think one has to see it in terms of is what preceded it. As I study the Studia Humanitatis, as I, as I studied that, I was just kind of filled again with a kind of fascination and admiration for the ways in which these men really kind of remade the ways in which a human being is taught to think about themselves and their place in the world. I mean, the goal of a humanist education, at least initially in the civic phase of it in Florence and other cities in the 15th century, was to prepare somebody for an engaged life in communal, civic, political life. We could learn a lot from that now, it seems to me, in terms of a preparation in eloquence and speaking well. And there was, a strong, there was a strong moral and ethical dimension to that education, too. What are the attributes of a life well lived, of a good life? And those values taken forward into political life, it seems to me, are, are pretty praiseworthy. So I think the humanist project is an educational system which moves poetry and art and language and speech and writing to the center, is at its core still viable. And of
0: course, we have the model for Sir Philip Sidney, who wanted to blend the active and the contemplative lives always. And poets of that era, that was part of their mission.
1: And that's a very that of course is a very old dichotomy: uh, the active and and contemplative life. And uh, often this activity of singing poetry to the lyre was was seen as that. In fact, among the many, many sort of stories from antiquity that are trotted out when a defensive music is called for. For example, in Castiglione's uh, The Courtier, Book of the Courtier, there is a moment when one of the interlocutors criticizes music and and the leader of the conversation of that day then immediately launches into what's called the Laus Musicae, the praise of music where they trot all these out. And one of these stories, it's always there, is the story that comes from Homer about Achilles retiring from battle to take out his lyre and to play and sing The Deeds of Great Men. This becomes a kind of archetypal story of this dichotomy between the active life of the battlefield, negotium, and the recreational or uh, restorative life of scholarship and reading and intellect, which is here symbolized by singing poetry, which is the otium instead of the negotium. So speaking of moments, is there a kind of crystallizing
0: moment for you that brought you to this project? Or, as the project is unfolding, that has shaped it for you?
1: That's an interesting question. I've spent my whole academic career studying Florence. I went there as a graduate student on a Fulbright scholarship in 1985 to work on what was essentially indigenous musical traditions in Florence, as opposed to what is usually studied. When mainstream musicology focuses on the early modern world, they're often in search of polyphonic practice and manuscripts, the tangible kind of guarantors of culture. So I have, from the start, been interested in the indigenous and uh, unwritten musical traditions of first Florentine culture, and in this project, it really has spread out to to the Italian peninsula and uh, all the centers of humanism. And at a certain point in this, I started to come across these, and in just reading all things Florence, come across these stories that had to do particularly with leading Florentines. For example, Lorenzo de' Medici, Leonardo da Vinci, Marsilio Ficino, uh, Angelo Poliziano, all of them engaged in this practice of singing poetry to the and improvising poetry to the accompaniment of a, of a lyre. And, of course, it wasn't just recreation for them. It was an adjunct of their profound engagement with poetry. For Lorenzo and Poliziano, the project to elevate the Tuscan vernacular, to make it a language on a par with Latin in terms of the, its range of expression, its registers, its ability to be a, a vehicle for philosophy and theology and not just amorous poetry, was central. And I mean, it was it was Lorenzo's central passion. And throughout his life, he always had a lira somewhere in his household and so i as i came across these documents describing again and again uh lorenzo's engagement with this practice i think at some point that lodged in my mind a you know a notion that there's something there's something here that is only been gently or hardly been picked at by scholars so that when i came to really focus on this uh, project it's been the process of assembling a giant jigsaw puzzle of pieces Uh, That really fit together, though, in in a quite a wonderful story.
0: Thank you, Blake Wilson, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for our next podcast for the National Humanities Center.